Well, greetings and welcome once again to Bombadale's Porch. It is a privilege to be back with you all. We are here just doing a duo today, myself, Chris Martin, and Nate Larmore. We wish to Caleb Klontz and his wife a very happy anniversary. Oh, is they that are out where celebrating. He... Oh, I didn't know where he yes, was. Oh, that's they great. They are up in Leavenworth, I believe. Nice. Hopefully having a, a jolly old time in that alpine-like vista. Which means that now, Chris, you and I get to stare into one another's eyes during the podcast. This is a new dynamic. <laughs> you just made the rest of this podcast very Awkward. self-conscious. <laughs> but yes, yes, if that's... I'm going to look I, away. I'm going to look at the bookshelf know, books uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, yeah, we uh, do wish them very well. Uh, excited for their life, their marriage, uh, their family, the example that's been to us. So happy anniversary to you guys. In your absence, however, we are going to talk about um, you and all the things that we know. Actually, we're not going to, but... I've got a good Klontz family story that just came up. This is for you, Caleb. This is for you, Caleb. You know how we play soccer on Sunday nights uh, during the summer. So we've been playing a couple weeks and uh, last, I think it was last week, Hmm. uh, car pulls up. We actually had a decent turnout and a couple kids come running out. One of them is Lizzie. And I'm like, Lizzie, good to see you. And we put her on a team and uh, I end up seeing her about 20 minutes into our first half, if you want to call it that. And I, and she's, she's laying on the ground and I said, Lizzie, what are you doing down there? She's like, I'm not playing anymore. I said, Oh, come on. You just got here. Why, if, you know, if you're not going to play, why'd you come? She's like, cause my mom forced me to. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, kids say the darndest things. But you anyway, can lead a horse to water, but you can't make me drink. We were glad to have a Klontz on the field. <laughs> yeah, literally on the field. There you go. So, um, you're welcome, Caleb. <laughs> uh, we do have a number of other things that we'll be hoping to cover today as we enjoy looking at God's world and God's word, focusing on God's world again with this episode. And we're going to start by looking at uh, an an issue which has covered the nation, <laughs> yea, verily covered the world. Uh, and uh, Nate will tell us more about that. And then we have kind of a papori grab bag of interesting uh, topics to leaf through later, as it were. Uh, and I'll stop making dumb puns and start with your topic, <laughs> I, I uh, Nate. I can't keep up with them. But, but yeah, <laughs> thank you for unmasking the next, next topic. Mm. That was terrible. All right. So um, Kevin D. Williamson wrote an article in the National Review, came out last week, and the title is The Mask. Uh, obviously, in this COVID last year, this COVID time, we're all been wearing masks everywhere, it seems. And um, Kevin Williamson wrote this article, The Mask is an Outward Sign of Inward Things. So um, just quick recap, Not this will be somewhat informative, but maybe just a bit of a review for, for, for both of us, Chris, and our listeners. Throughout the world, this, this question of to mask or not mask, it, it, it's not a medical question anymore. Or at it, least not exclusively a medical question. Yeah. I mean, with vaccination, I think we're crossed mm-hmm. 50% here in this country. I think most, uh, depends on what demographic you're in, but in an older demographic, almost everyone's been vaccinated uh, unless they couldn't, weren't able to, or chose not to. Um, but this question of the mask seems to become a question of cultural allegiance. And so um, I'll, I'll just grab a few excerpts here from from Kevin's article. Uh Way back in the pre-vaccine era, the author, the Williamson uh, 
and his family took a summer trip to Aspen. So at that point, Aspen had decided to err on the side of caution. The city had basically drawn a circle around the middle of downtown. And outside the circle, you were free to go around without a mask, outdoors, that is. But inside the circle, you were required to wear a mask in public, regardless of where where you happen to be, unless, of course, you were seated at a table and you're eating food or, or having something to drink. The policy was probably excessive, but it was straightforward. So clearly understandable. The circle was well-defined. And given that uh, the Williamson family, their plans mostly involved hiking around Aspen, the clear rules were inconvenient, but they said, this is acceptable. We know it's expected of us. So they soon discovered that following the letter of the law was not enough for some people. They were out on a mountain hiking trail well outside the city center, well outside the mask-required zone, and they would remove their masks out on the trail, let the sun shine on their face and breathe a little easier. And uh, in the words of, of Williamson, the usual tribalism showed up in the great outdoors when a woman with the voice of a 10,000 vice principals... <laughs> <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> the imagery. Uh, the wo- a woman with the voice of 10,000 vice principals. And the vice principal is key there. It really is. <laughs> it really is. There's a different... <laughs> Apologies to any wonderful vice principals you but may hear this. Thinking of Rick, he, he's got to chime in on this. You know, all his experience, decades exactly. of experience in education, I have to ask him. Well, uh, the woman with the voice of 10,000 vice principals hissed at them from across the trail. And this is the quote. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You're so selfish. And this lady's comment confused the family. For one thing, this is another great line from this article. He says, for one thing, we knew everybody in Aspen is selfish. That's how they're able to live here. (laughs) 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 But more to the point, the family thought that they were actually following the rules because they were well outside the mask required zone. And in fact, they were following the rules. And that was the problem. They were only following the rules when in the estimate of their hissing inquisitor, (laughs) cultural righteousness required more than compliance with the rules. It required hyper compliance. He goes on to say in much the same way, you can accurately predict a person's political allegiances from his household consumption. The people who drive F-250s and get their whole milk at Walmart super centers do not vote the same way as people who drive Subarus and shop for meatless burgers at Whole Foods. Attitudes towards masking have kind of followed the same political fissures. The people who resent masks and flout the rules generally voted for Donald Trump back in 2020. And the people who wear two masks while alone sitting in their Subaru driving to Whole Foods. I've got to, I have to interject. That has to be like a super Subaru station wagon. It must be. Cause, and maybe just because of the time I, sp- I spent in Sacramento. But if I he- hear Subaru, yeah. I think Russians. Oh, do you? Yeah. Because oh. the, the Russian community that I, I was uh, involved with down there, great friends. But man, they love their, their Subarus. They love the sporty, the you know, little sedans and... I think they were sedans or hatchbacks or something. I'm so bad with cars. I apologize to any who hear this. But maybe they weren't Subarus, you know. Uh, maybe they were Beamers. I'd... No, they were definitely. Oh, they were. They, they okay. liked it. Yeah. All right. Well, apparently in Aspen. Apparently in Aspen. Yes. <laughs> wherever Kevin Williamson actually lives, because he was on vacation. Subarus Subaru, and Whole Foods. The 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 stereotype that I've always noticed, and boy, now we're now we're I've walked right into a minefield Uh-oh. by introducing stereotypes. Everybody, please pause while Nate drops the, the dish on uh, yes. stereotypes. So this Eastern Washington is the most rural place I've ever lived. Um, now that 
Costco is 15 minutes away. So it's not that rural, right? Gas station is five minutes away, but we've probably because of my work, um, have lived in mostly large metropolitan areas. What I've noticed though, as I drive around that, uh, the, the certain folks that were more politically left than I am, shall we say, in these mm-hmm. metro areas, which might've been everybody. Um, <laughs> but the ones that were particularly noticeable tended to drive li- small cars and, um, and have NPR bumper stickers. That was always the thing. There you go. Okay. Fact, on the, the out on the roads, I'd see an NPR bumper sticker and I'd pull up next to him just to be sure. And they fit the profile every time, you know, well, certain it stands style. for not particularly Republican, right? I think it does. It, okay. <laughs> maybe not founded that way, but it certainly <laughs> does now. All right. Off the stereotypes. However, yes. though, this article yes. kind of speaks to, it does. uh, in many ways, I mean, life, uh, life mimics art. And sometimes life mimics comedy. And I think what's happened in our country is in some ways life has mimicked the stereotypes. Uh, the folks that, that um, if you notice, well, we're both bearded fellows. I don't know. It's, it's in vogue now. Yep. Um, but And a shout out to Caleb. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a certain look to people that have, it's weird. It's kind of like there are stereotypes and we've sort of become come them in some ways. So back to Williamson's article here, he says, um, the, uh, the whole idea of Trump versus Biden, in his opinion, it's not really the issue. He says, they're just tribal mascots. <laughs> he says, and those who understand the mask as a tribal identifier and a sign of righteousness are not going to give the mask up any more readily than, uh, Jews might give up eating pork Christians will start to abandon a baptism. He, apparently he has a, Jews a already have baptism. given up eating pork. Well, and, and it, <laughs> it's interesting when you talk to actual Orthodox Jews, they, they have a whole category, right? Of who the real Jews are versus not. Right. <laughs> um, at this point, according to Williamson, what the medical evidence says about masks is beside the point. It's not necessarily a medical question anymore. And he says it never was that just alone. So that kind of tees up an interesting conversation because I've seen, We've certainly seen in the last two weeks, as the Biden administration has come around to saying, okay, yes, the masks aren't really necessary, but we're going to defer to the CDC. And the CDC has said, no, they're not necessary. So the federal government has sort of been behind the curve on this thing. Um, It's been interesting to see how some folks, particularly in the media and in mainstream media based in New York, based in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, they're having a hard time giving up these masks and they've been fully vaccinated for some time. Right. To them, it was more, it was a sign of respect. Uh, to them, it was like uh, wearing suspenders with your belt. It was, you know, a good idea in case the vaccine didn't work or something like that. It's been interesting. Now on the flip side, I don't know if you've seen this, Chris, there are people that are like, I'm not getting a vaccine. I'm not wearing a mask because you can't tell me to do that. Um, so there's another stereotype and I, I know some folks like this, I'm not going to trounce on them, but on the other hand, their resistance to these things was more than medical. It, it, it really reached into some other areas as well. And I sure. talked to him about, well, you know, why are you so wrapped around the axle about well, why are you dropping your membership at a store? Because they're telling you to wear a mask. Well, they can't tell me to wear a mask. Well, they tell you to wear clothes and shoes and you do that. Thank goodness. Um, so anyway, there's, 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 there's our, our, uh, our, from the national review, an article that, that slants one way, but 
do them do you think the masks have come to mean more than just simply uh reducing spittle in the air well i mean i think yeah that's not a fair question absolutely of course they have that's undeniable i don't think anybody on any side of the issue is arguing anymore that it's exclusively representative of a of a medical necessity um it's and that's belied by the fact that both sides of the issue use moral rhetoric mm-hmm. and not medical rhetoric. Uh, they use medical rhetoric when they're trying to prove why the other people are dumb. But why should I do this? What often comes out of people's mouths is a moral argument. And you saw it even in, in the article you brought up. Yeah. You know, you're so selfish. <laughs> right. It's not like oh, I'm concerned for you. Let me hold my breath around you. Yeah. No one does that. They, in fact, uh, in fact, the people not wearing masks often get loudly confronted by people who are violating the social distance rules <laughs> in order to go confront them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it definitely is a religious uh, uh, interaction that's going on. Right. Yeah. We have symbols at play. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate how he mentioned even with Trump and with Biden and all of this, uh, they're symbols. And that's part of the reason why both sides don't understand the other, the way that the other side, in a, in that case, it splits the country more politically with Biden and Trump. Um, they don't, they don't understand the other side's affinity for their mascot. People look at Trump's life and they say, "Do you know about this, 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 this?" You know, the, yeah. the long list of, of con- of genuine concerns with, with a man with a character like Trump. Um, and yet those who would who would support him, they see him as a symbol of something that they see as very precious. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who will help them to regain certain freedoms or a way of life or et cetera. And the, the same is the other direction uh, where we, we would look at uh, perhaps uh, with us be, both being more right leaning, mm-hmm. um, look at at, um, at Biden as a figurehead or his ticket as a figurehead and say, there's some concerning things there. Uh, why, why are we entrusting our country to this? Uh, and similarly, well, it's, they're the figurehead. They represent something that they see as good. And and the mask is just such a weird one because it, as a symbol, it's so powerful. It literally is a symbol you wear on your face. Yeah. And it also, I find it interesting why do, why are people so why, why has it become such a provocative uh, item it, it uh for not for everybody uh, i think for some folks it remained a necessity whether it was for medical or just because you went into a store with a sign that said it's required and you're like well i mm-hmm. want to buy groceries so i'm going to put this on and i don't want anyone to come up and give me a hassle about it so i'm going to put this thing on um although i will say have you noticed the uh when was it chris was it like a month or two ago that the social distancing of six feet it finally came out that that was like a totally meaningless distance based right. on based on a i believe it was a study that wasn't even a study in the 1800s right so the whole thing was arbitrary mm-hmm. and um whoops to the credit the local school district imme- almost immediately based on that study revised the social distance requirement because yeah. that six foot is really impractical for a lot of things such as school um <laughs> yeah the airlines had always and this is another one the airlines had always ignored it yeah um and the government allowed them great to great memes of people queuing for the airplane <laughs> right 
six feet, six feet, six feet, six feet. <laughs> Ten seconds later, foot and a half, foot and a half, foot and a half. Well, the, all the stores still maintain a six-foot distance, but you know why? Because they paid for all those stupid stickers on the floor, and they're not going to move them around down to three feet. They're just going to leave them there. Oh, yeah. So you have these... Art- well, nobody pays attention to them anyway at this point. Right, at right? this point. So you have all these artifacts of old policy that are still there, but no one follows, no one enforces. And I have noticed too, the big- Out here. I would also clarify, I was talking to somebody just yesterday on the West side and they were asking how things are going out here. And, you know, if it was starting to be a little bit more comfortable as people were starting to be able to have a little more freedom and get around. And it suddenly occurred to me like, wow, um, I have been living in a different world than you. (laughs) I finally just said, you know how close to Idaho we are, right? Right. (laughs) He looked at me for a minute and then just laughed. And he's like, that's right. You're in a different world, aren't you? And I said, yeah, we kind of are. I was in Bellevue a couple, few weeks ago. And yes, it is different. There are people going out for a jog wearing their masks and not sure why that was never a requirement, but they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it is a little culture. There's a bit of a culture shock yeah. For someone on the east side here or, or probably any or any community outside of a major metropolitan area that goes sure. in there. And I and I get that in highly congested areas, there are some different dynamics. There are, um, but there's also concentrated there, there's a concentrated tribe over there that has sure. worked very hard to maintain. And that's one of the dynamics I think that's out there is if you if you took a room full of 10 kids and you told them, hey, if you're going to be a good kid, then you need to give yourself the biggest wedgie <laughs> you've ever had in your life. I might try right? this later tonight and if when event- I get home. <laughs> and eventually you compel these 10 kids to give themselves a ginormous wedgie and then you're going around, good job, good kid. That's a fantastic wedgie. Uh, then kid number 11 walks in and he looks around and he goes... Nope. But if you want to be a good kid, this is what good kids do. And he says, not interested. They will work really hard to make that 11th kid feel like a terrible person and perhaps even give him a wedgie. Right. So that it can reaffirm the rest of the group. Well, because if they give in to the 11th kid, it says, no, if they give in, then, then game's up now. Now we have to, now we're, now we're playing the emperor's new clothes. Right. And, and doesn't that kind of way talk about modern culture, at least in America, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a virtue signaling peer pressure that just dominates everything. And occasionally you'll get folks that say, hold on a second, that doesn't make sense. And now they expect that. I would say generally, this seems to be a, a culture of the, of, of what we now need to call the left. It's not really classical liberalism anymore. It's, no, it's, it's no. a form of fascism for it's sure. It's the opposite of liberalism. Yeah. And so you have ideologically, and, and you see this happening in the, in the social media space. You see this happening with censoring and canceling all this sort of stuff. These are just, these are fascist tactics by, by a leftist ideology. And what's interesting is occasionally you'll, you'll hear a celebrity or someone that's a perhaps a prominent figure that everyone on the left likes ask, start to ask out loud the question, hold on a second, this doesn't make sense. And they're immediately attacked. And until they capitulate or until they 
just go away. Right. Um, so it's it, it, in a sense, I like this. Those are pockets of liberalism <laughs> on the left. Yeah. When so they do that. I like the visual though. It makes, I should, it should make us all feel more positive that, <laughs> that these are all people giving themselves massive wedgies. <laughs> and I want to put an asterisk after that because that explains some of the dynamics. Right. right. I think that's a dynamic in the equation. That's not the only dynamic in the mm. equation. And so I, uh, I want to make sure we're not tarring and feathering you know, everybody that we see who's wearing a face mask to immediately assume, well, there's, there's a dunce with a wedgie and he's just too dumb to realize it. That's, that's not fair. That's not right. But to pretend like that, that dynamic is not part of this equation at this point, politically, socially, as a symbol, as a movement is also naive. I'm glad you brought that up because it's typically on the porch. We have these meandering conversations that will end up 12 points away from where we started. <laughs> so yeah, you can't draw a straight line between the mask story. Mm -hmm. um, there are people that are wearing first. There are people that um, can't necessarily get the vaccine safely. Yeah. And they're in, and I hate to say they're, they're in a position where they, they have to probably continue with, with some of these countermeasures in order to in order to be out in public and be doing what they need to do or take some or take some risks yeah. that that do need to be calculated and so yeah i we got to be careful we're not extending judgment uh that implies things about a person's heart we don't know while at the same time uh, i ran across an article this week that was talking about how we have got to be fiercely committed to reality and not fiercely committed to narratives Yes, and how both sides of the political aisle make the same mistake when they create an immediately a narrative for a situation and then demand all the adherents be committed to that narrative and, you know, forget the facts and both, both sides, far right, far left, far liberal, far conservative, pick your, however you want to slice this American pie. Both sides like to do that create a narrative, commit to the narrative, commit to the story all the way. Always interpret the facts based on the narrative filter as opposed right. to seeing reality for what it is. And we have to be the people of reality. And, and that's, that is ultimately then actually what lines us up with the real narrative of history. Mm -hmm. Cause reality, it reality contains a narrative because God's telling a story. There's a book you loaned me and I don't think you meant to loan it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't necessarily uh, mean it, know that I was loaning it to you at that moment, at that moment but I did want you to read it. You knew so. you would eventually. And yeah. I think, uh, I think by me good. saying, Oh, thanks. And walking away with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been working through that book. And when I say working, yep, it is not a speed read. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, Truman, true man. Yes. Uh, Truman. Who's, who's our author. Um, it, it really is. It, it, it is, a, it's interesting. It's the sentence structure and vocabulary choices are thick, but it's, it's powerful. And one of the things that struck me about three quarters of the way through it, although I was tempted to speed up just to get her done, but I, no, okay, let me, let me really drink in what he's got to say. And, and because I had a disastrous business trip this week, 
which involved me spending close to 24 hours sitting on planes and uh, grabbing a nap on the floor of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Lovely. uh, Before I ended up getting home, never having arrived at my destination. Oh, no. All that gave me some time to even read even more. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll also contextualize what you were reading in a certain way. Oh, it was brutal. It was probably my worst business trip of of the last 20 years. Um, But getting to the book... As I, as I work through it, it's, it's a philosophy book. It's philosophy of self, philosophy of culture, and then it's a, a, an application of mm-hmm. those principles on where we stand today and, and where things could go. What struck me about it is the gape, the massive chasm between the way most people think about themselves and about the world around them and the reality of what's actually happening around us. And I think part of the reason that media addiction has occurred, although I think a lot of folks have overdosed on it now and might be in a period of recovery because they just don't trust the outlets anymore. It's boring or whatever. Ratings were bearing that out. Oh, well, on the CNN side, absolute implosion. I think even Fox, even though their numbers are bigger than the others combined, that's not saying a whole lot anymore. Right. I think a lot of people are intentionally unplugging just for the purpose of, of some form of self-therapy because they're like, this is just... It's not sustainable. <laughs> Const- constant ingestion of this madness is making me an angry, paranoid, I don't even like myself anymore kind of a thing, right? right? So people are unplugging to some extent. And they're starting to meet their neighbors again and realizing they did not turn into some sort of reptilian terror. Oh, yeah. My neighbor had the Biden sign up. I, man, he's still a good guy. He, yeah. You know, when the sign went up, I thought, what happened to him? No, he's still a good guy. <laughs> Actually, I, I like him a lot. But um, yeah. back back to the book, right. the... With our, with our faces pressed into whether it's a TV screen or a computer screen, just constantly ingesting sources of opinions that tend to reinforce what I already think about all these stereotypes out there, that further increases this chasm between reality. And, uh, and I remember, for example, um, seeing a lot of really sad news about the state of affairs in Seattle. As the drug problem skyrocketed, as the homeless problem has has propagated to un, totally unmanageable levels, I remember seeing a lot of press about this. And we used to live in Seattle. It's sad. It's a beautiful city. It's, it's yeah. not, no city is perfect. In fact, I think cities tend to concentrate good and bad. You just see it right. because of the, the the geography of it. Yeah, human but, nature writ large. Yeah, but a wonderful wonderful city in many respects. And it was sad to hear that. And it was almost angering too, because it was it was coming from policy as opposed to other dynamics. When I would get worked up about this stuff and be talking to my coworkers and friends in Seattle about, you know, boy, it stinks. The city's, you know, going to heck in a handbasket and all that. A lot of them would say, well, not where I am. You know, hmm. be a few concentrated areas. Now I will say, reality is important. Those same people are now saying this mm-hmm. city has gone, <laughs> I mean, it, it has gotten out of control now, mm-hmm. but it is interesting how you begin to interpret the world based upon a view of it that is not really connected to reality. It's connected to what someone told you or right. what's, what a podcaster harps on mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I think for the Christian, this is, this is a great opportunity right now to, to demonstrate not only you know, to, to the world around you, but also to your family and to mm-hmm. yourself. I'm going to live in reality. And that yeah. and the reality will not always line up with the narrative that I like. 
Sure. Which kind of goes back to why do I have a narrative anyway? Uh, I have a Christian worldview. What, why am mm-hmm. I, why am I abiding by something that was cooked up in a think tank um, probably yeah. 15, 20 years ago and has been, a, has been handed to a political party for the purposes of power. Uh, by the way, that's another one I want to, uh, another, another, we'll have to, we'll have to cook this up maybe next week. Listen to a great podcast um, about, and it was, it was Al Mohler and his, it's his thinking in public series interviewing a think tank um, nice. CEO. I don't know if you've heard it yet, no. but very, very interesting. You get to see a little bit of how the sausage is really made. And, um, and it's often made by li- these or, nonprofit organizations of PhDs that have a certain agenda and they cook up policy. Heck, they even write a lot of the bills in hand and they're not politicians. These are think tanks. Uh, right. Very interesting. We'll, hopefully we'll have a chance to ch- chat yeah. about that in the, in the future. I wanted to ping off something that you just said there, which is the Christian worldview doesn't abandon narrative. It just accepts the narrative that's been revealed. Mm. And that's important because we don't believe that history has no story. We don't believe that reality is what we make of it. Because we don't trust ourselves to come up with the right story either. Because we all want to create a story about our own life and we all want to color it a certain way. Some want to color it into a victim story where everything is always out to get me. And it's, (laughs) it can be a little bit cute when they're five, you know, (laughs) when your kids are five and they're cooking up a story like that. Everything is terrible. You're fine. Uh, But it gets even worse when that then becomes people in their twenties and thirties and, and on and on and on. Um, well, and entire communities that are, are now been, yeah, not just, they haven't just stumbled on this themselves, have been mm-hmm. taught yeah. that no matter what happens, you're a victim. What a terrible thing to do to someone it or is. to a community. Narcissism isn't any better. Pride isn't any better. There's also the narratives about, you know, you just, you know, you're the greatest thing ever. Right. Make sure everybody else knows that. Um, all of these, all of these narratives that we cook up for ourselves are not better than adopting the groupthink narratives of, of large sectors of society. That's why the fear of the Lord will always be, be the beginning of wisdom. We start by saying there's only one person who understands this story and it's the one who's writing it. It's mm-hmm. the author. Okay. So who is he? What's he like? And what's he writing? And then we can start to piece things together. And I know that that can be uh, challenge the, you know, the accusation will be, you're just substituting social dogma for religious dogma. And that's only a valid charge if God's word is on the exact same level and is the same type of thing as social dogma. But if it's not, if it is revealed and it is true, uh, then it is the only narrative that actually will event will reach the ending that it's claiming to. Uh, so I, I don't want us to live a narrative free life as Christians, but we've got to stop being so gullible. I think gullible That's and the being word. sucked into the narratives of today. Cause the church has been making that mistake since the beginning is constantly trying to, Oh yeah, that kind of sounds like the Bible. If you kick this verse through that little hole, yeah, take it completely out of context. What you just yeah. said, Chris, I boy, that I've I have noticed I, I actually am trusting myself less and less. <laughs> uh and by that I mean even even in reading the Truman book, mm-hmm. you know, it talks about he makes a statement in there. I'm curious how he's gonna unpack this. <laughs> he does he's not talking about how a Christian gets saved, but how a Christian views the Christian life. He makes a statement in there, something along the lines of 
the way a Christian thought the Christian life was 800 years ago is different than today. And, and it's because of assumptions and presumptions that are baked into us from our culture that we don't even realize are there. And so it, what, where that leaves me is, um, I, it, it reminds me that I live in enemy territory. Mm. We all do. This planet is in a state of spiritual rebellion and has been since the Garden of Eden. And it's not just the people that are in rebellion and the people are part of the rebellion, but there's a spiritual war that we're also uh, being constantly manipulated by. So, I mean, in a sense, we live in enemy territory in the sense that there is spiritual oppression and deception that, that dominates our world. That oppression translates into manipulative, sinful people that are um, using every means that they can to get ahead and usually at the expense of others. And then I have the, the sinful flesh within me that just loves it all and, and, and wants to, wants to exercise my own, you know, my own selfishness and pride. And so I, I am apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit that he's placed within me when I, when he saved me, I am hopelessly outmatched in this battle and in a lot of these narratives, even the ones that are not overtly evil are distractions from where I need to be. And so I find myself, as I think through these things in, the, in this crazy era that we are, are living through in the last few years in particular, I find myself going back to the scripture, to, the, to God's word, to the Bible regularly. Even sometimes as I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, I don't even know if I'm praying very well. I just, can I just read Psalms back to you? Cause I know those are good. <laughs> you wrote them. So, <laughs> uh, but I yep. find myself going back to the, to the word of God more and more, if anything, because I feel like I'm living in a time of just, it's a wilderness of mirrors that's doused in fog. Yeah. How can you ever know your way through all of this? <laughs> you can't. And it, and it's not just a, you know, the taking that, that, that visual of a wilderness of mirrors that's doused in fog, that's full of pitfalls and traps and, um, Paul Bunyan imagery comes to mind, you know? And so I, I, where else can I go except back to the source, the only source mm -hmm. of truth, God himself and the truth that he's revealed in his word for any kind of, um, any kind of sense that I'm on stable ground. Amen. And that reminds me of a great quote by C.S. Lewis from The Abolition of Man, which we oh, yes. just finished uh, recently, where he talked about how modern man keeps thinking that he's developed the ability to see through <clears throat> things, see through things. And he says, eventually, if, if you keep that up, you get to the point where you think you can see through everything. But if you see through everything, it's indistinguishable from not being able to see at all. Mm-hmm. Because then everything is invisible. Mm. And I think that's how we're starting to feel. Science feels like it's been able to explain everything, and yet it's lost its ability to explain anything mm -hmm. uh, in the process. So, um, good chance to pitch that book by, by Truman, The Rise. Yeah. Or, uh, the Rise and the, Triumph, the rise of, and triumph the of the Modern, modern Self. self. Yeah. I had that book, as I mentioned, on the plane. The lady, the middle seat was open. And so the lady on the aisle seat, I was on the window, she was reading something and she looked over and said, what are you reading? And I just put it, I just, I, it's a long title. I don't even, I get tired even saying <laughs> yeah. it. So I just leaned at her way and she went, oh, put her glasses on and turned away. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it does. It has the title of a, of a textbook. It has a feel, the, the, this is an academic writing this, mm -hmm. um, 
I think actually, Chris, what, be, what I thought about in this is, you know, there's a not not that I'm sure anyone listening properly focused and motivated could work their way through the book and, and appreciate its conclusions and its in its um, yeah its statements. But it it would be it would be interesting for someone to take that and just kind of boil it down into the ten minute average Joe for guys like me. <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure that's going to be your job now oh, for your next book review here on the done. porch is going to be to That'll be after I review a documentary next. I got to yep. get back to my my fun of reviewing videos and whatnots. Yep. But uh, yeah, good book. And and actually, Abolition of Man, is a, it's a slow read as well, but it's an important read. And I think yep. certainly a lot more in, in terms of the... the the vocabulary and sentence structure and everything, I thought I think it's much more accessible to most of us to be able to work through. It's not nearly as long either. No, it's not. Yep. Excellent. Um, so, yep, get that book if you're bored, don't have anything to read, or Live Not By Lies. Rob Dreyer is another good one along those lines. Yes, definitely. But, uh, yeah, I think let's transition to a papori of, I of things you that went I thought were interesting. Papori. Now, I've heard... Yeah. I, I've I've seen and maybe it's a, is that a different word? I've seen bowls of potpourri in, yes. in your occasional men's room. <laughs> Usually, that's where it uh, is. you you must frequent men's rooms that <laughs> I are above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I a a cran a, a cranberry lemon potpourri. But now you say See, potpourri. Yeah. So is that is is that a is that a literary equivalent? <laughs> I, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You know, in Hungary, in, in Hungary, See, I'm st- I'm scared to pronounce any word around you at this point, including well, your name. Earlier, uh, well, before we even started recording, wh- what was it? Did I say a word, or you said a word, and one of us said, "Is that how you say that?" And we got oh, into this whole exchange yeah. about, well, if you look hard enough, you will find some country that has an English accent that says it's <laughs> a certain way. Exactly. I can't even remember what we were talking about, but all right. Yep. Well, this is going from something terribly significant to probably something a little less significant, but I do think it's a, a fascinating sign of just how far ideas will be carried if you let them. Uh, the title of the article is tree inequality is rampant in cities and it's this is not uh, i'm not making this up this is the headline and it's killing low-income people and people of color hold on uh, just just i think i asked you this earlier you're talking about trees as tree, in tree trunk trees branches leaves. leaves little tree inequality tree inequality oh, okay. so they They've, uh, using like Google satellite maps and stuff, they've examined a bunch of different uh, metro areas and they've discovered that there is an inequality in the number of trees in inner city areas, predominantly, um, with people of color and and minority groups compared to those neighborhoods and and more suburban and rural areas that are more predominantly uh, white or affluent. So, so we've always known there are more trees in the burbs right. than downtown, but now they're, 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 the next step of that is, is a well, this is the spirit of our time, right? A race thing. So that, right. is that where this is headed? Uh, that it's just another sign of the systemic nature of, of the inequalities in our society. Now, to, to be literally killing people, <laughs> what, how, what percentage of of uh inequality would you expect there to be between 
the rich people's neighborhood trees and the poor people's neighborhood trees to to be likely to kill people. Oh, it'd have to be significant. If people are dying from the lack of trees. Yeah, if you would guess, what would you guess the percentage delta there is? 10,000%. <laughs> that would be a lot of percents. <laughs> I don't the uh, I, are there in in the but but in the burbs versus I mean I work in major metropolitan areas there's not a, there's not as many trees because where would you put them um, is in, in so in the burbs are, are there a thousand times more trees in the burbs than downtown the the difference that they observed in the in the neighborhoods they were um, analyzing was fifteen percent oh. This entire article is based on a 15% delta. And people are dying from 15%? They, they never get around to actually making that case. It's oh, in the headline. It's right there. That's click, they, clickable. They, yeah. they conclude later that the lack of trees likely contributes to less oxygen and less pollution absorption, which likely contributes to health issues, which could contribute to higher death rates. Therefore, 15% difference in trees... <laughs> Is like, literally killing people. I like how you kind of set that up. This could be, and that might be, and this could be, therefore, right. <laughs> con conclusive statement. Yep. And that's I'm how actually, you get your headline. I'm really impressed with the city planners. If it's only 15%, I would have thought it was a much bigger difference. But um, yeah. yeah. So how about that? That 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 headline, it, it, it seems hyperbolic. Just a little. <laughs> It's a headline from a, a publication, though, that is designed to, quote, aggregate. Actually, I shouldn't say quote because it doesn't. I'm not actually quoting. No, oh, they don't so, use aggregate. My bad. Okay. Uh, but the publication's purpose, they said, was to aggregate all of the most important scientific things happening in the world any given time because there's too many scientific journals being published for the modern, educated, sophisticate to be able to keep up on everything. So they're going to consolidate down the most important ideas and happenings in, in the world of science. And this made the cut. Wow. I then went to see who works for this publication. And I noticed everybody on their like About Us page, with the exception of one person, is a graduate of Columbia. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went, aha. <laughs> that, uh, well, Silly well, Columbia, my goodness. Well, and Columbia, this is another thing. Boy, you could, this is the problem with GIS information, right? The geographic information mm -hmm. system. So you, you get into these systems and you can, it's amazing what you can look at. I'm sure that was a basis for the tree analysis, right? <laughs> um, you can extrapolate anything you want out of this data. And there's, uh, for example, I'm thinking Columbia, New York. Um, so all these people... Um, are victims of the of of this condition, but I'm sh I'm assuming they're all in pretty doing pretty well. If they went to Columbia, they're doing pretty well. Well, the reason I bring up Columbia is also because that is the mothership for cultural Marxism mm -hmm. and critical race theory in America. Right, that's where it comes from, and so you are not surprised then to find that it's producing thinkers along those lines. But to see that it has come to the point now where if you have four trees in your neighborhood and they have three and a half trees, I know mm -hmm. I'm being silly, in their neighborhood, that's a sign of, of systemic racism. Uh, what is the correct response? Right, The correct response is that plant more trees in these neighborhoods, cut your tree down, uh, switch places. Th this is not a problem that has, that has a solution beyond inculcating guilt 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to make people with trees feel bad the- and to create every opportunity, no matter what you see, no matter where you turn, that's a sign that, that this world is, is being defined by oppressor and oppressed, including now if you ever turn down a street and it happens to be lined with beautiful trees, you can no longer say, those are really pretty trees. You now have to say, this is where the oppressors live. This, uh, by the way, one of the most prominent anti-CRT voices is a guy who must feel so lonely at Columbia. <laughs> um, he, he, um, he was on the Bill Maher show recently. I've actually been reading, he's publishing a book chapter by chapter and, uh, I've been following it. And I mean, now he's an atheist. Um, so he has a lot of angry, uh, salty things to say about, about my faith and, 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 and my God. Uh, on the other hand, he is also an, a prominent anti-CRT uh, voice and one of the few. And it's amazing that he's at Columbia. He must have some serious immunity attributes that he's able to check to 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 withstand the counter pressure. However, one of the things he talks about is this is a horrible way to live. And yes. and and, uh, and and not that Bill Maher is anything. I mean, talk about an anti-Christian fellow. But even true. But you, I've appreciated he's willing to make an argument that runs in multiple directions. And, and even recently, <laughs> right? I mean, when you find when we are in times where a couple of uh, Augustinian evangelical Christians are looking around in the culture, uh, if you want to call it a culture war, I don't really know what it is. Um, and you look down the line and you see a guy like Bill Maher is on your team. Uh, <laughs> makes you wonder what on earth is going on If here? we're both running from the same thing, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> and even Maher has made the point. He's like, nobody wants to live in a world, in a society that, that views everything this way. I mean, good grief. Even the trees are under attack now. And, and, and to your point, it, a lot of times, if, if you look at how uh, critical race theory has has man, it's a philosophy, but how it's manifested in the real world, it it in other areas they wouldn't plant more trees; they come cut yours down because that's how it's. it's right. We're talking trees, but in other ways, talking about scholarships and police forces and uh, higher ed, the institutions of higher learning, they're not building new ones to balance the inequality. That's too hard. <laughs> It's it crit- right. We were talking about this earlier, the destructive qualities. CRT is not constructive. No. It's a destructive view of the world. And so when your view of the world is destructive, you can't build anything. You can only take what's already been built by others and either divvy it up or burn it. And in the case of the trees, now, fortunately, though, again, we're going to be looking at who's on our team. Bill's going to be over there running with us. And now we're going to find that the, we've got some tree, some tree loving folks that are with us now too. <laughs> Don't cut those trees down. But these are, these are crazy times. And They're going to accidentally build the most bizarre political <laughs> consensus group in the history of the planet. It'll be the, it'll be the intellectual dark web guys. It'll be Dave Rubin. <laughs> it'll be, uh, it'll be, uh, Feinstein. It'll be Ben Shapiro. Bill Maher's going to be there. It's going to be crazy. And a bunch of Baptists. <laughs> and a bunch of Baptists. <laughs> D- yep. Doug Wilson will be there. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I think yeah. he's got his own deal, but, but it, it is, a, it is a time in which I kind of go back to something I was sharing a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. It is a time where there are important things going on, but it's also so easy to become distracted. It is. And, and distracted by something that not isn't necessarily bad, but it's not the most important thing. 
Right. And we have got to be immune to what will become the, the rhetorical um, moral flourishes of this movement. Because so you mark this down, right? This is All right. not a prophecy because I don't like getting stoned, but here, this is coming. You're going to write a book, though. Nope. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is coming. Uh, they've tried for years to shut down the bourbon lawns, right, with um, Save the Planet rhetoric. That's really hard to do wherever you have money, i.e. Southern California, mm -hmm. or wherever you have a ridiculous amount of water, i.e. like where we live in Washington. We just love growing our lawns. Get ready for the full-scale assault on lawn supremacy. Oh, I am yes. willing to bet that phrase will appear in a headline sometime in the next year. Is lawn supremacy and that the white and upper class, upper class oppressor group continues to maintain lawns as a symbol of the hegemony. It is a colonialistic suppression of the native landscape, a waste of resources, and a way of perpetuating oppressive cycles through visual distinction between social classes within the community. Wait for it. I bet you you will see an article could, almost along those lines could, in the next year. Could we solicit James Lindsay and his merry band of, of, um, of peer review fraudsters to, to help us write a paper on this. Cause oh, I think it'd be, man, that would be easy. It'd be too easy. You know, the first target will probably, I, I think you're onto something here. This will be fun to track. Um, it won't be your and my lawn. It'll be the golf course because talk about a symbol mm. of, of hierarchy and oppression. Although it's greatest champion happens to be Tiger Woods and a variety of others, but, but uh, it, right. it is interesting. You're, it, again, it's the haves and the have nots and uh, what must be done about it. There we go. That will be the green new deal. <laughs> the green. <laughs> <laughs> to do All right. Well, lightning round here for a couple last things I thought I'd throw out just for comment before we wrap up, because I think we're, yeah, we're rapidly approaching wrap up time. Oh, yeah. Uh, new survey shows nearly half of millennials don't know, don't care, and don't believe in God. This study has been getting a fair bit of traction. It's been showing a pretty uh, quick drop off generation to generation. 79% of baby boomers felt that way or believed that God did exist. 70% of Gen Xers. Uh, and, and now we're down to, uh, nearly half, uh, have rejected any kind of, uh, of an association of either knowing, caring, or believing in God. Uh, and then the, the same study chronicles a number of other moral statements that went along with that. And so here's, here's my question to mm. you, Nate. Mm. Do you think that this primarily indicates a a catastrophic freefall in the actual number of believers in America, or do you think this more accurately re, uh, reflects what has been, in many ways, a correction towards a more accurate picture of the number of believers in America? Because unless you actually believe, you won't culturally associate as a believer because that's no longer in style. So is belief in God becoming rarer or just less fashionable? Um, does that make sense? It sure does. I, what comes to mind is um, my, my late father was a, a minister, a pastor for, oh man, was it 50 years? And um, he used to talk about, uh, he was faithful to the word, expositional preacher, but he would 
jokingly say that whenever the church attendance would grow to beyond capacity of the building, you could do one of two things. You could do a fundraiser, start selling cakes and donuts and, and all that, and do an expansion project. Or you could just preach the word a little harder and attendance <laughs> goes down. So he, he'd always go with the latter, by the way. He says okay. it's cheaper and you end up with a better <laughs> flock. Um, but the, so I, I, I share that, um, give me a little bit of time to formulate an answer, but also I think it illustrates probably where you could, you can guess I'm going with this. I, I tend yeah. to think that these numbers, this decline reflect is coming closer to reflecting the truth of, of born again, a true biblical Christians in the, in the society versus uh, for a long time, it was, yeah, I believe in God. I'm an American. And uh, don't really believe in any particular God and don't feel that I have a responsibility. But, yeah, there's right and wrong. And Hitler was bad. and I'm better than him. And, hey, I didn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. That kind of, quote, unquote, I even hate to call it, quote, unquote, Christianity. But that kind of of a very secularized deistic view, maybe. Sure. Um, Therapeutic, moralistic deism. Yeah. I mean, Schuler. Oh boy. There's, oh a, boy. there's a great book on this. I ought to do a book review on that. Oh, there you go. Great book analysis on Schuler, but that kind of crystal cathedral, um, spiritual development is what you make of it. The power and, of positive thinking. Yes. All that stuff. That, Who was his mentor again? I'd have to uh, go back to the book. I remember, yeah. He, um, yeah, that, that definitely a guy that that brought marketing and demographics to the uh, to the world of church planning and growth. But anyway, the point being, that results in people that are cultural Christians as opposed to biblical Christians. And by cultural, I mean what I just described. Yeah, I, I believe there's a God somewhere, and I believe in being nice to people, and um, you know the the Bible tells me that, uh, yeah, I should be nice to people and they should be nice to me and, and, and never having opened the Bible to actually understand what it says. So my, my, back to your, your question, I, I think this probably talking about reality, reality is more important than poll results. So in a way, <laughs> at least people are admitting yeah. <laughs> what they probably, probably really thought and certainly the way they lived indicated they didn't really have any kind of a relationship with the almighty agreed yeah i don't think what we're seeing here is a deficiency in biblical discipleship in fact i think what we'll tend to see is that discipleship will become if anything more more effective as it becomes more costly and it becomes more rare in the church uh, and especially generationally between parents and their children if they'll be faithful to teach their children um, but you can no longer count on any hope i think if if you uh, are casually a Christian, quote unquote, where, yeah, I believe in God and a higher power and I go to church uh, and I hope that my kids will believe in God too and will help them be good people. If you put a, your child through, especially a public education system and your level of commitment to spiritual things, let's use that term loosely, is at that level, uh, your your kid will almost certainly have no no use for God in their life because the worldview they're being taught is one where that has no value other than if it makes you happy. Uh, but for the parent who does teach to this conviction that is held by the parents 
uh, that we do believe that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, and he's revealed himself to us in his world and his word and most per- perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Um, I, I do not think we're seeing, and I don't think we will see a mass falling away there. And so the collapse of the mainline denominations, the reduction in what we're seeing on polls like this, I think it's less alarming than we sometimes pretend it is and more clarifying as to what reality is. And so we should, I think, welcome that kind of honesty and then redouble our discipleship efforts. Yeah. yeah. We, I think sometimes historically these kinds of polls, we, we, we fret. We're like, oh, the, the country that I thought I was living in, it's going downhill. And it's like, well, maybe it was, maybe you weren't fully aware of where you're living. And, um, and I kind of look at these polls now, these polls can be skewed and they're, they're not necessarily scientific, but, but I look at polls kind of like the instruments in your car, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, oh, yeah. darn it. I'm, you know, the, the indicator says I'm out of gas and keep driving or actually say, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's giving what me an, an obnoxious in- indicator. <laughs> right? I'm going to cover that up or I'm going to argue it. I'm going to, oh, that indicator is wrong. You know, being facetious, but it, it, the idea Take these, take what's important is truth. That's what's important. The, uh, the cracks me up talking about cultural Christians. Have have you been, I don't know where all you've worked over the years, but it always cracks me up in my work settings. People will hear I'm a Christian and, um, and and, and they'll, then they'll hear I'm a biblical Christian because that's a little different. And, and I, the response, the response you get, I've never had anyone come hard against me on it. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I think that's, you know, that's a gift from God, but it is interesting. The response, one guy, he knew this and he thought that that allowed me to like marry people. I thought that was funny. He's nice. like, I met, you know, I'm not my, my fiance. I want to, can you marry us? You're religious, right? <laughs> it's like, okay. Hold on 10 um, minutes online and I can get universal uh, life yeah, church. Boom, I've got, done. I've been certified. Um, the other one too, that I get is people will say, will make comments. They'll, they'll quote what they think are Bible verses and they'll look to you and be like, that's in the Bible, right? Like God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> this one. Uh, another yeah. one, another one, there's other th- little pennies. penny saved is a penny earned. It's amazing how many of the ones that people think are in the Bible are Benjamin Franklin. Oh yeah. 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 The, the other one too is it's not personal or it's not, yeah, it's not personal. It's business. That's in the Bible, right? No, nope, that was the Godfather. Uh, see, it, it, <laughs> you, have the, there's, you have the Godfather and the father God mixed up there. <laughs> but, uh, well, but again, whoops. these, when the, when the darkness, these are the times to shine bright and it's not yeah. us responsible to do the shining. We just need to submit, obey mm-hmm. and submit to the ongoing work of the Holy spirit in our lives and he will do the shining. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad to hear mm-hmm. that people don't even respect, uh, the, the reality that there is a God. I think it also reflects a completely corrupt educational process for most people. Yep. Uh, lack of education in, in the order of the world and false education in, 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 you know, the universe we live in. But anyway, the reality is these people don't know Christ. They need to meet him. And that is why we are here to introduce them. Amen. Yeah. And I'll piggyback off of that education comment to what will have to be the last uh, brief observation. And we're going to land it here. Uh, Here's a question. Uh, Speaking of education. So news came out this week. The um, leader of Hamas in Gaza, his name is uh, Yahya, I think it's how you pronounce it, Sinwar. He's been in hiding, right, as all brave revolutionary leaders are. 
And he finally they're, they're afraid of F twenty twos. That's right. What. Yeah, he finally <laughs> he's at a head out of his hole wherever he was hiding for a photo op, and he chose for his photo op to bring a child, a young young boy, up on stage with him, dressed up as a terrorist fighter, gave him a big huge gun, and then started holding him up, waving him around in front of the crowd, and kissing him all over, wow. and just you know, good job, little boy. I'm so glad you're ready to go die for the cause, you know, while I'm hiding somewhere safe. Um, so that that's going on over there. And I think we would say that a, a man who, who is teaching little children that this is what is good in life is to try to go and get yourself blown up to kill a bunch of other people just because they happen to be part of some class of people. We say that's pretty evil and reprehensible. Yeah. Well, we both saw in individually um, a little one of those undercover video things <laughs> of a guy named Ami Harwitz, who is a, a Jewish fellow who went to Portland State University and uh, was not wearing a yarmulke at this <laughs> juncture because he was actually not have <laughs> no, he was actually uh, going around pretending to be a representative of. A new Hamas, an updated Hamas. This isn't your grandpa's terrorist group or whatever he said. Uh, and <laughs> and he went around and not in a sneaky Mm-mm. kind of way. He just went around saying we're we're part of this terrorist group. We we uh, we don't have access to fighter jets and stuff. You know we don't have F fifteen, so we have uh, suicide bombers, and we're trying to sponsor attacks on soft targets. And he's yep. listing them: cafes, schools, we want to obliterate the nation of Israel. Yep, our goal is to wipe out the Jews. We don't want part of the land. We want all of the land of Israel. And so we got to get rid of all the Jews. Uh, and so we're, we were looking for support and money to help, uh, you know, uh, sponsor these activities so that we can do all of these attacks and things. So he's literally asking these students if they will give him money so he can go blow civilians up in Israel. I mean, there was no backhanded plea to make this like a sympathetic group. He's directly up front saying, will you pay me money to go blow up civilians? And student after student says, sure, and commits to paying 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And there's a, there's a little reel. So here's my, here's my question. Is there a material difference between Sinwar, leader of the Hamas in Gaza, inculcating this vision of hatred into a young boy and making him a symbol of their ongoing struggle and teaching this young boy that his purpose in life is to go blow himself up for the cause. Is there a material difference between the abuse of authority? We would say that kind of discipleship is there and the professors at Portland state university who have taught their students to pay the money for the bullets in that kid's gun. Mm. Is there a material difference? I, I, I don't know that there is much difference between the two. Now, in terms of the ramifications legally and all that stuff, I, I don't know. It's beyond me. But, but On but, a question of moral reprehensibility. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I was going. From a moral standpoint, this is, uh, I mean, first of all, anyone, if you're going to Portland State or paying for someone to go to Portland state, one of the students on that video responded to Horowitz and said, Hey, yeah, I've been learning a lot about this for the past exactly. year. And he was, he's like, I'm all in. Right. Um, and, and it was 
it was okay. Yeah, I'm not simply <laughs> implicating the professors there. By the students said by the students' testimony, right. they are being taught a worldview that makes them feel it is a morally good thing to sponsor the terrorism of Hamas. Yeah. This, um, um, by the way, is is Ami Horowitz related to David Horowitz? I don't know. By chance, don't uh, know David that. Horowitz is another uh, prominent pro-Israel, anti-communist voice. Boy, is that guy hated. I, I'm under what yep. kind of security he has. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen videos of him speaking in college campuses and being confronted by, um, there's a group, uh, the, there's a, a group, it's an Islamic group, uh, and it's a student group, kind of like our athletes in action, except mm-hmm. they've got their version of it. And I've seen him very skillfully pull out the truth from some of these students, what they really think. They come up and they're talking about the the oppression of Israel. And I've seen Horowitz in the back and forth draw out of them finally what they really believe in, which is genocide of of all Jews. So I think back to your point, Hamas clearly has a genocidal hatred for the nation of Israel. They're by charter. Yeah. (laughs) It it is, it is, it is in their national charter, uh, or in their charter as an organization, the, um, and that genocidal hatred of the Jews, which is, which is really interesting. Love to love to hear like a clinical psychologist talk about this. They hate Israel so much. They're willing to kill their own children to hurt Israel. Yeah. What kind of genocide is that? Um, you're killing your own people. Right. In order, in order to fuel or fulfill your hatred of, of this other ethnicity. The other thing that fuels this stuff, um, and I was listening to David Horowitz speaking recently uh, in an interview, and he don't agree with it. When's the last time you heard anybody you agreed with completely? It doesn't happen. But it was interesting to hear from Horowitz, who, by the way, was a in the 60s, a radical leftist. He was a communist. He was a member. He was a supporter organizer of the Black Panther Party. He, um, he was the editor in chief of, uh, the magazine called the uh, Ramparts, which was a mm-hmm. radical leftist magazine. And he is now quite conservative in his thinking. And so the, the Q and a was about what led, what led to this? And he said, well, I grew up in Brooklyn. My parents were communists. It's all I ever knew. I was a Marxist. Um, I was actively involved in, 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 the proliferation of communist ideals and Marxist ideals mm-hmm. into all sorts of political movements. And ultimately what led him to walk away from it is he saw all of that thinking, all of that ideology for what it was. It was hateful and it was deadly and um, interesting story that he's got there, but he said it's, it is fueled by hatred for America. And so I think that's at the source of this, these professors, right? He say, what, what is the common denominator between a, you know, a professor that is teaching his students in Portland or her students in Portland to hate a people group. What is the common denominator between that professor that's fueling that with, with the head of Hamas that has the same hatred? And it, it, it is a hatred for, it's a hatred for people. It's a, it's a hatred for America as a country. It's a hatred for Israel as a nation. The alliance between the two fuels more hatred. Um, and so to your point about the moral um, the moral outrage around all of this, it, there's very little difference between the two because the ideology that both spew is intended to ultimately kill. Yeah. And that, that is, I think, something we have to really wake up 
and realizes that these ideas have horrific consequences. If you extend the notions of, of Marxism and all of its attendant modern fill-in-the-blank theory uh, uh, ex- experiments, M- Marx was a guy who hated everyone and everything but himself. He had no love for his family. Mm-hmm. Right? He almost starved his children to death. Uh, he had no love for his wife. Uh, his family was kept alive on the the good graces and financial support of a friend who felt bad for them. Otherwise, he literally would have starved his family to death. He was a vile, angry, hateful man who said he believed everything that lives deserves to die. That he said that was his favorite quote. All that lives, de- all that lives, deserves to die. Right. So we're talking about an absolutely horrific man, and his ideas lead inevitably to the state of mind that he was in because it redefines everybody in classes and it put, pits those classes inevitably against each other and it requires the decimation of one class by another. And that's how you can have Marxism in the classroom turn into students, young kids paying money to have young kids blow up young kids. Right? That is that is not a theoretical, that is where this worldview is at today. And if you don't think that's going to lead to blood in our streets, then we are so naive that it should be criminal. Well, it already has in the past year. It has. That's a good point. It has. And I don't want to... Lives have been lost. I'm not just talking about the $2 billion in riots and the damage to, Mm -hmm. to human life and the damage to human health that all that created last year. But murder rates are up around the country. Yep. Astronomically so. And, and so these ideas, as you, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, I mean, these are, these are ideas that it's interesting to me. We were talking earlier about the gap, the chasm between the way, the theory of how I view the world in reality. I think some of these students that were on that, that mm-hmm. thought of me was really raising money for a terrorist group, as you said, to arm yeah. kids, to go up and blow up cafes in Israel. And these kids at PSU. Oh yeah, like one guy. Would you, would you take twenty seven dollars? It's all I've got, you know. Well, did you see twenty seven dollars? Because that's how much I gave to Bernie. <laughs> that's right. So um, oh. the uh, but but the if you were to go confront these kids mm-hmm. at the school there and say you do realize that if this was real, you are funding kids killing kids, they'd probably say, "Oh no, that's not what I was doing." It's kind of strange this this gap in rea- between reality or what's scarier is they I might say myself. I know that's terrible but it's a necessary evil oh, yes. because yes. that's the only way that the oppressed can overthrow the oppressor. Well, who's oppressing who? That's that's been an interesting one. By the way, in that book yep. um the book we were talking about, the True Man book, Truman mm-hmm. book. <laughs> true Man. <laughs> like, true Man. Um, that is a great name. It is. He uh, is is I was walking through, he talks about Rousseau. He talks about the philosophical underpinnings of where we live today. Why, yeah. why, where did all this come from? Yeah. Rousseau's, uh, he's on the top what offender a, list. What a piece of work. Yep. Like, like, okay, you have entire, I mean, the majority of academia here in this, in the, in the West, mm-hmm. in one way or another, is adhering to Rousseau's ideas. They're yep. the underpinnings of, of the Marxist ideal. They're underpinnings of all sorts of these, certainly CRT, if you go back far enough. Mm-hmm. So it started with this guy. Um, and, and so in terms of his impact as a thinker, it's, I think, I think Truman even, even compares it to Martin Luther in terms of the impact, not the value oh, of it, but the no. impact on the West. I don't, there's it, any question there. It's unbelievable. And it, but when you go back and look at the man, 
What a total piece of work. I wouldn't trust that guy with my lawnmower based on the kind of life he lived. And yet we have an entire mm-hmm. era, epoch of modern civilization right. that is 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 abiding by And this is not unique, theories. right? Yeah. It's not unique. You go through a lot of these guys and you're Wait a minute. <laughs> you know. Great book, by yeah. the way. Uh, Paul Johnson, the uh, British historian. Um, don't know if you've read his stuff. Uh, History of the American People, History mm. of the Jews. Great biographies on, on profound uh, people throughout, throughout the, the modern era. Great, an easy read, too. Writes, wrote a book called The Intellectuals. It is fantastic. And what he does is he, he chapter by chapter, picks the most prominent thinkers of the modern era and talks about this is what they preached, so to speak. This is what they, you know, their view, their philosophy. And this is who they were as an individual. <laughs> and my goodness, what hypocrisy. It's fantastic. It should be required <laughs> Worth reading. Worth the read. Yeah, it yep. should be. Well, I know well, we, yeah. were, we were trying to land this plane a little while I ago. Think and we'll have to call <laughs> that good. Yep. There's another fun article that I'd like to get to maybe next time. But um, yeah, this has been fun to discuss. And you know, to our families and those that are listening, um, you know what, what a joy it is to know that we have in Scripture the narrative, the truth, the representation of reality, that we can go back and ground ourselves and that... That is one of the encouraging things to watch in history is that the more people try to conform their lives to the dictates of scripture, the more blessed it is for human flourishing across the board. Uh, and, and it's also sobering to see the more people try to actually live out the, the ideas that promise utopia and et cetera, that have arisen over the last two or three centuries, the more it has ended in just uh, staggering amounts of death and bloodshed and horror. And and there's nothing about the Christian worldview to be ashamed of Mm. Uh, that when, when you look at history and you're told that you're on the wrong side of it, Mm. you can say, well, if the wrong side is on the opposite side of genocidal murder in the name of good, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Uh, and then when Christ returns, of course, we'll, we'll be okay with that too. Uh, that'll be one monarchy be, we can all live with <laughs> yeah. quite well. <laughs> well, we will land it here. Um, a lot to see from the porch these days. And it sometimes seems like the things in the distance are getting closer to the porch than they used to be, <laughs> but that's okay. Cause that means Jesus is getting closer too. Uh, thank you for joining us, for listening to us. As always, would love to hear from you, including the email I got from my mother this last week, oh. uh, noting that apparently I had confessed some things on the porch that I hadn't actually told her before. So she's learning things about me. Wow. From... I was hoping it wasn't like, you haven't called me in three months, uh, Chris, <laughs> Christopher. <laughs> Christ- yeah, the, the Christopher. But uh, would love to hear from my mother again and or anybody else that would like to reach out to us. Uh, bombadillsporch at gmail.com or visit it or visit bombadillsporch.com and uh, leave us a voicemail. We'd love to include that on a future program if there's any topics you'd like us to cover or talk about. But uh, we will we will end there. And I hope that you can sit under a beautiful tree enjoying the inequality of it, wherever that happens to be. Uh, and do look out over this world and see that uh, between your toes uh, and all around you, there is that which is real, and it speaks of something that is uh, moving towards a, a good purpose and a good end that we can know now 
And so do not live by lies, as Rob Dreher would say, but enjoy living in the truth. Thank you.